And when I find generic drugs that might have a value, I have never been able to get any pharmaceutical industry interested in that, even though they could be potentially life-saving. It's just not economically feasible. And I'm not complaining about pharma, and I would never do that. It's just that that model doesn't work. So de-risking the risk of making drugs across millions, possibly billions of people in a decentralized funding could be absolutely revolutionary. Remember, 7,500 drugs are approved, and we have no idea what they could be used for. And I believe they can be used for many things. This episode is sponsored by Circle. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. I'm on my lonesome today. Sheila is out for a week. We're talking about medicine today, specifically the role that decentralized organizations or DAOs can play in helping to lower the astronomical cost of drug development and to accelerate it. I'm joined by Gennaro Dursa, the founder and chairman of Genetic Networks, whose idea for something he's calling PharmaDAO is getting a lot of attention. It's a radical new way of getting around the inefficiencies and monopolistic behavior of big pharma to find treatments for diseases more rapidly and at lower cost. In the midst of a global pandemic that has put into stark relief the need for rapid drug discovery and development, and in the wake of the opioid epidemic with its revelations of wrongdoing by Big Pharma, the idea is as timely as they come. So let's bring in Gennaro to explain the concept. Hi there, Gennaro. Hey, great to see you, Michael. So I met you, I think, about a month ago, maybe, in Lisbon, and you were sort of starting to float this idea, and then you've been on a kind of a whirlwind tour. Uh, you went off to the Waterquick Forum at Davos and you were then at Consensus and a bunch of other places. And it sounds like you're getting a lot of traction here. So intrigued to hear a little bit about where it's headed. But before we do that, why don't you just mm-hmm. break down the problem you're trying to solve? What is it that you see as the need here? And then we can talk about how a DAO can fix that and get into where things are headed from there. So what is the big solution? What is the big problem you're trying to tackle here? Well, that's a great question. I think the way I've been looking at this over the past uh, six months or so since really looking at DAO's blockchain technology and where it can be applied to the problems of uh, drug discovery and and finding medications to heal people is really about, I think, big purpose ideas. And so for me, decentralization was a phenomenal experiment that obviously showed that people wanted it. uh, obviously, as we saw Bitcoin go to 20,000 or so from nothing. Uh, that's clearly a demonstration that people want a change. But I think in cases like medicine, where it is so expensive to drive a drug to market, we're talking, you know, average of three to five billion nowadays through the big pharma process, in my mind, not very sustainable as a model. The thing that um, drove me to realize that decentralization could help to drive not only prices down, but also the speed of delivery of drugs, is the fact that there's a lot of use for drugs that have already been developed. So there are safe uh, drugs that have already passed most criteria for acceptance, which is FDA predominantly, but also approvals take place in other countries. There's about 7,500 approved drugs out there. And 
the technology that uh, people like Lee Hartwell, who's a, who's a partner with me, and other uh, really remarkable scientists that work with me, we developed uh, technologies over a few decades, really, in a sense, where we now have the ability to identify potential uses of those drugs that, quite frankly, was never available before. And that is really what drove me towards decentralization, because I felt by having that technology and bringing it to the people, we could literally bring uses for drugs that are already out there, already safe, that are already inexpensive and off patent, and try to apply those in, in problems that we have. So that's the big picture. The big picture mm -hmm. is, I like to think of it as decentralizing purpose. So you've got this process that at your level, the application level here in a way, to actually develop and accelerate the drug discovery process. But why is it not efficient to just take that to Big Pharma and fundraise through them? What is it that you need to do to get a decentralized funding approach to that accelerated discovery process that you have the technology to deploy? Yeah, I think that's another very good question. And the way that can be explained quite easily, I think, is it's just the nature of the business itself. The way things have been done in the past or are still done is literally the only interest is making new drugs in the industry because the cost of the infrastructure that big pharma has to pay every year is enormous, quite frankly. They're very large companies. Everybody knows that their interest is largely in drugs that are going to get billions of revenue and it limits the number of drugs they can go after. And it's always a really challenge to find a, a new drug, to find new IP. And they spend most of their time, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just that's the way the business operates. They look for new IP and new op opportunities to make billions of revenue to support the large expense of making drugs. I think this is revolutionary in the point of view that the infrastructure cost for what we do is very low. It's analytical and also experimental. It's wet lab combined with analytics. But there really is no need, as we've all learned in the last two years, there's not a much need for a lot of space. And a lot of this can be done offline. So the key thing here is that the expense is overwhelming for big pharma. They have to produce very expensive drugs. Repurposing drugs has never been something that would make enough money, but it can still be profitable. And that's where decentralization comes in. And there's something you said to me that I thought just really took my imagination bigger, and that is that think of all of the communities out there of families of people who have an interest in finding the cure to a particular disease and how they can be kind of motivated now to participate in something like a DAO to fund this. So, you know, my sister sadly died of, of melanoma about four or five years ago. You know, we all contribute to the Melanoma Society in Australia. We do, you know, but all of us, the thing that we would probably most like to see happen is a cure or some sort of like accelerated treatment for melanoma of which there's just one of obviously countless diseases and, and you know, cancers and problems that are out there. So it seems to me there's like a ready-made community of, of passionate people who would like to see these things accelerated. How are you thinking about incorporating them into you know, a DAO-like model? Yeah, I think it's important to, to state my background is. I'm a scientist. I've been a scientist for over, I guess I've made my 40-year mark. I, I've had four decades of research experience. And I worked on the cell cycle when I was young, younger, still young, I hope. Basically, we discovered the genes that as a group, uh, and Lee Hartwell was the primary person that led this charge for cell cycle and cell division. And we discovered several genes over the years as a group, again, scientific community. 
that led to treatments for cancer. I think there's several drugs now, FDA approved and, and working to save lives and making billions of dollars, quite frankly, for pharma. As scientists, we don't really get a reward for that other than a job that's stable, et cetera. We don't get royalties for the genes we discover anymore because the Supreme Court decided against that. And so that was a big hit to me when I was younger. I was part of my drive was to, you know, I wanted economics as well. And I had a salary, but I could love to have some money if I discovered a gene and that was taken away from us. And so at that point, I started thinking about a company and I had a platform that I was developing, you know, with my team and others that worked. So that's, you know, so important to realize that I have an academic background. I know the research institutes you're speaking of, the foundations. I have a community of scientists that know me, know Lee Hartwell. Yes, we can get to all those institutions and get them supporting this for different reasons. And I've worked on things like spinal muscular atrophy, uh, Parkinson's disease, et cetera. And when I find generic drugs that might have a value, I have never been able to get any pharmaceutical industry interested in that, even though they could be potentially life-saving. It's just not economically feasible. And I'm not complaining about pharma, and I would never do that. It's just that that model doesn't work. So de-risking the risk of making drugs across millions, possibly billions of people in a decentralized funding could be absolutely revolutionary for finding treatments we need. Remember, 7,500 drugs are approved and we have no idea what they could be used for. And I believe they can be used for many things. Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3, featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host, Sheila Warren, Aves Stanley Kulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. So that de-risking concept is really important, right? I mean, is it fair to say that the way that you're thinking about this from the doubt, you know, you're basically diffusing the interest in this across a large group of people who have a different set of incentives to being involved. Some of them might be financial, but a lot of them, as a, you know, to use my example, is really just a passionate one. And, and therefore, my sort of tolerance as a, as a collective group is different from that of a big pharmaceutical company that is looking for the blockbuster you know, drug. And, and that, so therefore, you're spreading the risk more widely. Is that the right way to describe it? That's precisely the way to describe it. When people ask me why a DAO, that's the answer. It's a de-risk move because I'm not kidding anyone. Making a drug, even a repurposed drug, is a challenge. It's not going to happen just because I have this wonderful technology to help us evaluate these things. It's going to happen every week. But I want to emphasize that one single drug being discovered could literally lead to enough revenue to sustain any type of nonprofit or otherwise institution forever. The amount of money that's involved in any drug discovery is astronomical. And all you have to do is look up Cystic Fibrosis Foundation to find that out. They have $5 billion in their treasury based on a single drug being manufactured by Vertex Pharmaceuticals that they help support. In fact, they spent all their money supporting it. And Vertex put no dollars into it. It was really funded by Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, who got $3.5 billion for 10% royalty. So... 
The reason it works in decentralization is because the market is so large. It's a $1.7 trillion market. If you just get a small fraction of that market, you will sustain a DAO for indefinitely. And the question would be, how many drugs can you find if you have an indefinitely running machine that can fund small trials that cost less because they're safe drugs? You don't have to go through safety. You just have to go through a phase 2A or phase 2B, which it might cost, you know, 5 million in some cases. And that's nothing compared to what, you know, a typical drug would cost. So this is what I'm excited about. It's the de-risking of a very risky process. So tell me a little bit about what the feedback you've had. And you've been talking to a lot of different people, potential investors, but presumably you're talking to some of these foundations and their interests. You're talking to the people in the medical community. I don't know if you're talking to governments about this, but obviously as we come out of the, you know, or still are in perhaps, I, I myself, full disclosure, had COVID last week. In this pandemic, there's so much attention right now on the need to develop treatments for this or for future diseases going forward. How are you locating this proposal in that discussion? And are you getting, you know, what, what sort of feedback and traction are you getting? Yeah, so I think the best way to describe what's going on is to tell you a little bit of the history of what happened. I was a typical company coming out of academia and running it myself and trying to sell the pharma, the screening that we do, and it was working. I was profitable the last four years. It's been a great ride and and really enjoying it. Great group of people, and it's a very small group. But when the pandemic happened, which I'm glad you raised the pandemic, because uh, this is a moment when we had some profit and we put it back into the company to try to solve a big problem, which was find a treatment for people that were dying in the hospitals. And we didn't really concern ourselves very much with the virus. Uh, we knew that pharma would go after the virus. That's what they do. And we knew that vaccines would be developed. So we actually took a different path. And based on the way our technology works, I won't go into right now, but you know, I'm happy to describe that sometime. We went after drugs for mortality. We went after drugs that could save people from dying because we really felt that was the most important thing. One thing to get a cold, it's another thing to die from a cold. So I searched for drugs that I thought could do that by looking at retrospective analysis. And regardless of what drugs I found, I found some that looked promising. And so I had screened those in my library or in our library at, at Genetic Networks. And we, and we basically found uh, a number of drugs that looked similar based on our functional profiling. And it turned out when we went to pharma and tested those, about 70% of them worked to block the virus. And some of those were anti-inflammatory. Or I think actually all of them have anti-inflammatory activity, which would explain why they were reducing mortality, because that's what people were dying from, inflammation. So we were super excited about this, of course, and we ran to put our discovery on paper, and we did that. And then we went to pharma, where we obviously were met with, these are not our drugs. This is not something we want to pursue, and that's understandable. But then we went to government. So you mentioned government. And I spent a lot of time and money, you know, lobbying and just trying to get people to, to understand what we had. And in the end, uh, two years later, I, um, I'm happy to say that things are moving forward and, and government is getting behind us. And we're trying to start the process of screening over 7,000 drugs we have not screened yet. We two, have two some years, screen. how many millions of lives later, right? Let's just be clear about it. Uh, well, exactly. The, I mean, there's been over a million deaths in this country, and I think we could have saved right. half of them the drugs we already have but now it's the process that you have to go through and it's just the way it is and i you know I, I teared up when i was realizing how long it would take before i got anywhere and it took longer than i thought actually i thought it would take about a year it ended up taking two years but we are there and then now i'm going out and thanks to people like uh, to be quite frank like you michael and other people that 
have met me somewhere and realize what we were doing is really important. In six months, I've been all over the world, actually, from Venice to Lisbon to Norway to Austin to New York. And the response has been overwhelming, quite frankly. I mean, I gave a talk at Consensus and I had an hour-long line of people asking me questions and some of them were almost tearing up because they felt that this was a use case for blockchain that was desperately needed to help blockchain work in this decentralization world. And it was really touching and gave me goosebumps. And I was like, okay, this is something that I have to really do and, and really push. And so it's been overwhelming, the response. And, mm-hmm. and it's really exciting to be in a position where the work of Lee Hartwell, he's 83 years old, he's a phenomenal scientist, he's very quiet and modest. To have him be by my side going down this path is just absolutely thrilling. I really hope we can reach a point where we save lives and make a difference. You yourself have an interesting personal story in this as well, in the sense that you were blind at one point, right? I mean, just this idea about being at the right time and how important these treatments can be. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't tell very often, but when I was 15, I was a photographer. I was uh, quite a dedicated photographer. I used to spend all my waking hours pretty much in a dark room. Shot in New York, and I used to live in New York and New Jersey. And so ended up getting keratoconus, a genetic disorder of the eye, which causes the cornea to misshapen. And um, I went blind. You know, it kind of sucked. I was you know, a photographer, and all of a sudden I can't see. I'm young, 17 years old. And uh, I tried glasses for a while, and it didn't work after a while, and then contacts didn't work. And then finally, I was getting frustrated after taking trips to New York every weekend to get refit with contacts that never worked. I just said to the doctor, I go, what, what the hell can I do here? This is terrible, you know. And he said, well, you can get a transplant. And it was a new technique at the time. It was invented by George Buxton from Argentina. And he was in New York Eye and Ear Infirmary, which is like one of the top eye hospitals in the world. And he did the surgery on me. And I still have that cornea that he put on my eye when I was 17. It's remarkable how long it's lasted. I hate when doctors tell me it's amazing it's lasted this long. That really makes me upset. But it has lasted this long and I can see fine. And when I did, I realized that medical technology is ultimately a lifesaver. You know, it saved my life in a sense. And I was working in factories. I, I didn't have any real, you know, dream of doing anything special. And then I realized I was reasonably smart and could study and went to college and ended up getting fired up on science because medical technology was kind of in my brain. Before you knew it, I was a geophysics major and then a biology PhD, and I was all over the place studying all types of science. And I ended up in a lab that would go on to win a Nobel Prize. So, Mm. you know, life-changing things can happen from medical technology. And if I can do that, save a life somewhere along the line, you know, that's a remarkable thing. And, uh, you know, just to give you an idea of where we come from, my partner, Corey Mislow, who's one of my scientist partners, co-founder, he gave away a kidney anonymously, you know, like like people I, I hang out with are not dedicated to money as much as they're dedicated to saving lives. And so this is what we're about. And I think it's really important in that story because it just shows how things can change when somebody is generous enough to provide something you need. So let's let's talk about the money question here because, I mean, and I know that you're still figuring out what the structure of the DAO would look like and how you go about, like, launching it and so forth. But, I mean, one of the issues that inevitably will come up is like, you know, how, how is the money dispersed? And if there are revenue, who does that go to? And then what is the legal framework around this? Again, these are questions to answer perhaps going forward. Like, you know, is the thinking here that the supporters of the DAO 
even if there is going to be this funding mechanism coming back to them if there's a successful drug, are really not in it for profit, right? That this is a this is a different way of thinking about it's not really philanthropy, but it's also not necessarily a for-profit operation, right? So how do you thread that needle in, in the way you think about what, this, what the structure of the DAO is going to be? Yeah, so that's a great question. I've been working on this for about six months, as I mentioned earlier. I have some real experts involved that are much more Web3 savvy than I am. I've been down the path, and this is sort of recent discoveries. I've been down the path of tokenomics and looking at different token structures. But we're always running into the same problem in that tokens are going to be securities most likely. And when it's a security, you run into the problem of accredited versus non-accredited investors. I'm happy to report actually, I'm not sure how much I want to say about the details of this because I don't know them as well as others in my group. But at the high level, I'll give you a high level idea that I'm very excited about. It came to me in early morning a few days ago in New York and when I was struggling with the idea of security problems. I realized there's another path one can take that involves NFTs. And NFTs are, by definition, not a security. But they also are a measure of success. And so, in my mind, a business model has been created by the production of NFTs and has been proven. I think one of the NFT collections has a market cap right now of $4.7 billion which is quite remarkable because it's not really tied to any use or any real purpose. But I think the, the point was that it created the understanding of new business models that could be created on blockchain with NFTs. And that hit me hard. And I woke up in my subconscious state with this concept and I ran it by a few experts and they basically said it was sound and would work legally. And it would also give opportunities, not so much on speculation of currencies, but speculation on whether or not I'll do any good in the world. And if I do, the value will go up of the things associated with that. But there's other mechanisms we're looking at that will give, for those that want it, a potential reward. But those that just want to be altruistic will have that opportunity as well. And so it'll involve a non-for-profit foundation as well. But I think it's really exciting. Um, I'm thrilled about it, actually. And I just can't wait to be able to tell you about the details of this when we have it all ironed out. But the people involved are brilliant and young. That's the two things I've noticed in this world today, how absolutely brilliant some of these younger people are. They're over the top. Some of them are, you know, scammers and this and that in the world. Of course, that's always going to be there. But the real, real deal ones are amazing. And they really have the right attitude. Somebody like a Sam Bankman, those people, I mean, those, those are groups that really do want to make a difference, I think. And I think with their help, et cetera, you know, that's going to be the future. But what's interesting, just from just reflecting on this a little bit, like is sure. it's the ambiguity of, of the sense of what value is. And we have this very rigid way of talking about profit and not profit, right? What you're doing is a whole lot of different bundled returns, right? It's part of it is, the financial part of it, but a big part of it is just the knowing that you did good, right? And that's all part of everything that we do. And so I think that, you know, there's something really interesting here about how as you go through the process of getting this thing properly, you know, legally uh, rolled out, that it's actually an opportunity for regulators and others to look differently about what a project like this, because at the end of the day, anything that's going to accelerate drug discovery is going to be positive for society. And what government is not, certainly at a time like this, not going to want to promote that. I think that's a really interesting point. 
So, and again, I think you're probably also trying to figure out what the governance of the DAO is. I've had a lot of conversations. One of the ones that we had at Consensus for the Money Reimagined podcast we did there was with Kimball Musk and with Tracy Bowen of her DAO. And we talked a lot there about like governance and who gets to decide and how does everybody participate and so forth. You know, you're still working this out. I mean, obviously, as you go through figuring it out, what do you see the roles of within the DAO of how decisions are made as to what you're going to work on and what not? I, I have a very strong opinion about these things. I may be wrong, <laughs> but I have my own opinion. The more I think about these things, the more I realize that it's going to be a hybrid. I believe everyone in this planet should work towards doing something that makes them happy, a job they like to do, and they make money and they pay their way through life. But I don't see DAOs as being necessarily the way you do that. Currency trading is not for me, never was, and never will be. But, but I believe that big purpose events like shelter, water, food, and medicine, the four essentials of life, could be supported by a DAO could be supported by the people for the purpose of making everybody equivalent and okay. Then you would have opportunities to build companies, whatever. I'm not against capitalist societies where if you want a Maserati, you go build a company and buy a Maserati. But a lot of people don't need a Maserati like Sam Bankman. So the idea of saying, here are the essentials that you need in the case of, you know, Kimball Musk, food, which is what I think he should focus on personally making sure everybody has it. That's medicine for me. So in my mind, I'm looking at this as not a governance issue as much as a combination of decentralization purpose with autonomous subgroups is what I like to think of it. And those are companies. Those are centralized companies that do something incredibly important. In our case, it's we have a technology we develop to repurpose drugs and yes, by all means, we should be running that because that's our, our invention. We know how to run it. We don't need a DAO to tell us how to run it. And if we screw up, you don't fund us anymore. And if we do a great job, you fund us more. That's the way the world should work. And that's the way I see it working in a decentralized world. So basically what you're saying is you're taking funds from the people and going directly to the companies that can do good rather than going through a middleman, which is right now, of course, the government, which funds research $35 billion a year. And doesn't really generate, as you said earlier, drugs that can actually help you survive. It gives you research data in publications that's helpful for the pharma companies to make new drugs only. But I want to turn it on its head and see if the science community can actually help us repurpose drugs and then get something back for that potentially. So to give them an incentive to not just publish papers, but actually get involved in the treatments that we all need. So it's a hybrid, if you will. Decentralization right. with autonomous subgroups that are companies. That's the structure I think that will work. Yeah. And it's fair to say though that genetic networks would be one of therefore a number of service providers mm-hmm. essentially contracted by the DAO to do this work, right? So you've got a committee of some correct. sort in the DAO making decisions about where it's going to allocate the funds and you'd be putting in RFPs or whatever. To, to do that work or you know, something like that. And you'd, you'd basically be contracted by the DAO, right? And then you've got a testing mechanism to see whether you're actually living up to your promises, et cetera. Exactly. And you could also break it up and you could have independent DAOs. I have people talking about DAOs for clinical trials. And that's a great idea, but it's hard for me to imagine a revenue stream that would support the clinical trial company unless they come up with something clever 
in the case of generic networks, we're fine. We're profitable. We have a company that works. We're not going to be dependent on a DAO. We operate independently of the DAO, but we can help the DAO reach their purpose, their goal. That's what the, this combination is all about. It's, and then, of course, you have to perform. You have to do a great job. I don't think anybody would have complained if Google made it a DAO when they started searching or Facebook made it a DAO or, you know, Apple made it even a DAO. You know, it could have been financed not by VCs, but by a DAO. And then everybody mm. would have gained instead of just a handful of people would have gained. And so this is kind of a revolution right now to see where it will work the best. And I personally think it works the best on the things that everyone needs, but nobody really cares about too much. You know, water, shelter, food, medicine. You know, those four things are essential. Yep. It's exciting stuff. I mean, you know, I was taken by it when I first met you. And it's great to see the progress and the interest and really, really excited to see where it goes. You know, thank you so much for spending 30 minutes of your time to tell us about it. And thank you to all of you listeners. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for for now. Bye bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Michael J. Casey and guest Gennaro Dorso. This episode has been produced by Nicole Link, edited by Michelle Mousseau, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.